um, a few weeks ago, I was up here giving an announcement about us recognizing new leaders in the church. Uh, we have elders and deacons, as the New Testament talks about, as the leadership of the church. And um, over the past couple years, we've been down to just a few deacons, and we wanted to expand that team. So we've been looking and thinking and praying about that. Um, a few weeks ago, we mentioned a couple of people that we would like to recognize as deacons. And what we said was we would give it a few weeks so you could pray with us about these men, offer your feedback, blessing, concerns, questions about them to us. And uh, there weren't any uh, concerns or you know, criticisms of these guys. They are godly men as we thought they were. And uh, we were very happy to just bring them up. We want to bring them up and pray over them this morning. Um, this is Doug Elric and Ryan Carter. And if I could get my fellow elders to join me, um, often what you see in the New Testament when new leadership is recognized, the current leadership lays hands on the uh, new leaders and prays over them, uh, commending them to the work of the Lord, and that's simply what we want to do this morning. So. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you um, do a work in each of our lives to bring us into spiritual maturity, to be more like Christ. And for some, you put a calling on to dedicate a lot of time and concern and care and energy and their spiritual gifts to your service in a leadership function. And so we're so thankful for Ryan and Doug, men of God, that you've raised up to this role. And we pray your blessing on them, Lord, as they serve as deacons here. May they be a blessing to the congregation and the congregation to them. And may all be done to the glory of Christ. In his name. You are God, you are God, over us and letting go. in for uh, the Haiti mission trip just because it's full doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to Bob okay because Bob would love to go again so talk to Bob and uh, we get two teams that'd be just uh, double the fun all right double the pleasure so okay Bob you problem with that Okay, yeah, if you, really, if you really want to go this time, you figure it out. And, oh, uh, did we dismiss the kids? Any other kids in here for Sunday school? I think they kind of got out, so that's good. But, yeah, anyhow, if you want to, want to go to Haiti and serve the Lord in Haiti with Bob and some of the other guys from the church and gals, whoever's going, I just really encourage you to be praying about that. I'm excited about what God's doing, not only here in Creekside, in this area, but also what God's doing in and through the church and the ministry uh, around the world, so we're excited about that opportunity. I'd like you to invite or invite you to pray with me as we prepare to worship through the study of God's word this morning. Father, we come to you, and you know, as we were singing that song, Lord, I just kept thinking, I I want to to run into your arms, and I want to know more consistently what it means to rest in your great love, and so I pray that you would work in my heart in each heart here, so that those words that we sing might become more than just words, 
but they would be the prayer of our heart. They would be the experience of our lives that we would run into your arms and find your peace and find your joy and find your love to be all that we need. And I pray now as we study your word that your spirit would work in us. And I think, Father, for me, this text could just become a duty to be followed. And I pray that what we talk about this morning might become the desire of our heart because of our growing devotion and growing love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last issue of the Urbandale Living Magazine, I had written an article, and I began that article with a quote from my great-grandfather. And my great-grandfather used to say this, As a rule, a man's a fool. When it's hot, he wants it cool, and when it's cool, he wants it hot, never satisfied with what he's got. It's human nature to complain. We always find something to whine about and moan about and bellyache about and complain about. That just comes naturally to us as fallen human beings. As those who are new creatures in Christ, if you're here this morning, you're trusting in Jesus' death as a payment for your sins, God has a different plan for our life. Not a plan of complaining, not a plan of moaning, but He has expectations for us in our perspective in our practice that are higher and better than all of that. He expects us to, to, to love and give and encourage one another. We've been looking at 1 John, and interestingly enough, I was thinking about this week as I was preparing the message because we've talked about what we're going to talk about this morning. We've seen it in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, we have been reminded by the Apostle Paul that we are to love one another. We're discovering that in these passages that loving one another is not optional. Okay, that, that's those passages. And now this morning, in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12, we come back to the same thing again, to love one another. But it seems to me that as we revisit it in even a more searching way, we find or a more searching understanding of what it means to love one another. So that loving one another becomes not just something that is commanded, not just something that is not optional, it is in fact natural. And that's what the text I think this morning tries to unpack for us. You see, John was combating these uh, Gnostics, they were the knowing ones, and for them supremacy of intellect and superiority of enlightenment somehow trumped the practical aspects of the Christian faith, the, the moral and ethical. And in, in fact, it, they, they all enticed the believers away in a sort of a scandalous way, away from what was to be engaged in by them in the moral and ethical realm, and particularly that of loving one another, those in the body of Christ. The focus was they should love one another, and, and so fulfill the command of God, which is in John 13, 35, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's not a new thing. But they would draw them away. And so John argues convincingly that the, the believer's love is an indisputable indicator that we are truly in the family of God. 
And he does so from a, from a vantage point of this connection we have with the Father. It is running into his arms. It is this connection we have with the Father that makes loving one another the most natural thing, or should be the most natural thing in the world for us. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 4 or whatever electronic device you have your Bible on. That's fine too. I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to look at three reasons for why loving one another should come natural for believers. To know God fully is to reflect His character at least minimally, okay? So we, we would reflect who He is if we truly are His children. First John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, Beloved, this would be the second time we've seen that introduction. We see it again in verse 11. So if you look at verse 1, and you look at verse 7, and you look at verse 11, you see this introduction, Beloved, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God, and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent His Son, His only begotten Son, into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. And He says uh, that He has sent His Son as the only begotten in the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And so there are three reasons I see in the text as to why those who know Christ should love God naturally, and then in doing so, we reflect the reality of our faith in God. First of all, we're commanded to love God. Now, that's not new, but look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Beloved, as I said, appears three times in 1 John 4, and it's just that term of endearment, a connection and affection. He's talking to his kids. He's talking to fellow believers, his family, those who are in the fraternity of the faith, okay? Those are the people he's talking to. This is the command which they had from the beginning. See, they were sucked into thinking, if we just know about God, and that's the fear I have for those of us who grew up in the church, you know, some of the people who come to faith in Christ when they're like you know, in their teens or later in their 20s and 30s or whatever, they don't, they don't have all this church stuff, this, all this church baggage that they carry with them. They just, they just love Jesus. You know, it's like, hey, I just, I just love God. I just love Jesus. We grew up in the church, and somehow we think that because we know the stuff, that's all we need. We don't have to follow and actually do what God says. But that's not what he's saying here. Sometimes we erroneously believe that our superior knowledge exempts us from doing what God says. There are three indications from the text as to what this love means. That'd be my question. I'd read the text. Okay, beloved, love one another. Okay, well, so what does that mean? That's easy. Sounds good. Uh, so we're supposed to have ooshy-gooshy feelings for everybody that we know in the, in the body of Christ. No! Some people that I love, I don't really like all that much. But that's not the point. First of all, semantically. 
semantics has to do with the meaning of the words, okay? Semantically, the word, the Greek word agapao, means it's, it's a unconditional love. It's not something that's uh, necessarily reciprocated. It's not something that you do because somebody else loves you, or I do something because somebody else loves me. The idea is that it's intentional and deliberate choice. It's an intentional and deliberate choice to give better than I get. Did you get that? When I'm doing premarital counseling with couples, I say, you know, when you're going to love each other, this is not about a feeling. This is about a commitment. And God is calling you to love each other. It's giving better than you get. It's acting better than you feel. I mean, you wake up every morning and you just feel like loving people? Sometimes. Sometimes not so much. But that doesn't eliminate the call that God has given to us. So semantically, it's, you know, loving, acting better than you get, giving better, or acting better than you feel, giving better than you get. It's, I, think of, I think of Marge McKeever. And Marge is taking care of her husband at home. Has been for a long time. She's definitely, in a sense, giving better than she gets. I think about my wife. After a hard day of work, she comes home and she fixes a meal for the rest of us. Slugs, you know. And so she, she comes and, and, and makes food for everybody else. After she's tired, too. I think about uh, the person that we call on the phone and, and they're hurting. And you know that they're hurting. Or they call you. I got a call yesterday from somebody. And, and it, was, it was kind of cute because they were talking to me on the phone. And they were getting ready to just, just unload. You know, just spill it all out there. And then they, oh, well, but how, how are you doing? And I said, no, no, no. No, that's not why you called. I said, just tell me what's going on. You know, it's hard to get those phone calls when somebody's just calling. And you know all they want is something from you. And they don't give a rip about what's going on with you. But that's what love is. That's the unconditional part of, of love. And then grammatically, grammatically it's in the present tense. So the, the verb is given in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing action. Now that's a little bit difficult. You know, it's not too bad. Well, I can, I can love you know, somebody maybe once, but this is kind of like an ongoing thing. That's what he's talking about is that it's the ongoing choices to sacrifice and to serve. Ongoing choices, everyday choices to sacrifice and serve the people around us. In our family, it's like, okay, not just one day putting the dirty dishes from the sink into the dishwasher, or if you don't have a dishwasher, actually doing the dishes. It's not just one day doing that. It's like, you know, I mean, I come home and I say, I did that yesterday. Uh, you know, so now does God want me to do it again? It's, it's actually picking up your clothes, dirty clothes, and putting them. Now, I don't know, some of you have hampers, some of us have piles, uh, some of us have places where it's kind of supposed to go, you know. Well, wherever that is, find it. And that's an act of love. Love is continually and regularly putting ourselves out. It's, if, you're, if you're married, it's, it's, it's constantly or continually asking your spouse how they're doing or what can you do for them? How can I be a, of service to you? That's in our family. In God's family, practice ongoing love is a, is a little bit more difficult sometimes. It's showing up. Some of you, bless your hearts, you show up every Wednesday night. 
And you know, you got a horde of kids coming in at you, you know, and it's like, oh boy, and you've had a hard day at work and you're tired and they're coming in anyway and they're all enthusiastic and energetic and you're going, what am I going to do with all these kids? And you serve week after week after week and you bless their heart and you show Jesus to them. And what do you get out of it? These kids run up to you and they say, oh, I just appreciate so much you being patient with me when I'm being a brat. No, they don't care. No, they don't. But it's loving. That's the continuous part of it. It's people who are up here weekly and regularly planning services and, and playing to lead us in worship. That's their sacrifice. Without recognition, without appreciation, oftentimes. That's what it means, ongoing love in God's family. I was thinking uh, this week about Rod Clarkson, who's a member of our church. Some of you know Rod, some of you don't. But I've been told that for years and years and years and years, he has been the main guy who prepares the elements, who buys the bread and, and gets the elements ready for us to celebrate the Lord's table together. Now, he's not here, so I can talk about him, right? I didn't know he wasn't going to be here, but I would say it anyway. That's love. That's a demonstration of love. It's not the only thing. Love consistently prays. It regularly gives. And it repeatedly inquires and constantly cares about those around us in our sphere of influence. Now, that's a tall order. That's a difficult thing, but that's what love is. Then contextually, in the context, you know, it's interesting to me because most people when they read the Bible or uh, people who don't read the Bible much when they talk about Christians is, yeah, well, you don't love people. And most often they're talking about loving people outside of the church, outside of the body of Christ. But do you know the overwhelming admonition and instruction in the Bible is that believers are supposed to love believers. Now, don't hear me saying we're not supposed to love unbelievers. We are. But it begins at home, in the family of Christ. And that's what John is talking about. It's to be exercised between believers. Love continually asks, what can I give, not what can I get? And you know what we often find in the church of Jesus Christ? People interested in what they can get, not what they can give. Well, you know, I don't really get anything out of that service, or I don't really get anything. I really don't get. I really don't. It's I, 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 I. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. It's supposed to be, what can I give? How can I serve? How can I love other people? It's personally helping meet believers' needs. Sometimes that's physical, practical stuff. Sometimes it's you're just praying for them. It's using our gifts to serve, you know, and help take care of the facility, help watch the little ones, to help plan and do ministry outreach like an Easter egg hunt or to go on a mission trip to, to Haiti. I wonder sometimes in the church of Christ, are we complaining and criticizing more than we're actually praying for a situation or even beyond that, working to become part of the solution instead of part of the problem? You know, I've had so many people over the years, that say, well, you know, just, uh, I just don't know if we should, how, why we don't do this. I'm saying, fine, you want to do that? I'll help you. I'll support you in that. Oh, well, no, no, no. I didn't think, I, I wasn't talking about me. Somebody. You know, when somebody does it, nobody does it. It has to have a name. It has to have a person. That's what love does. Love continually seeks to be part of the solution. I wonder, 
ask ourselves, am I sending cards or text messages or making phone calls or welcoming people who are hurting or needy or struggling or having a problem? As God brings it to mind, do I make that phone call or do I stop to pray for those that, that God brings to my mind? That's what it means to love. Do I visit and reach out to those who I know are lonely and hurting? Or am I just worried about, why isn't anybody reaching out to me? Now, don't get me wrong, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to be unsympathetic to, the, to those of us in the body for whom nobody's reaching out, and we can share that honestly, that that's a hurt, but it's like, well, nobody, that, that person, they never, they never talked to me, and I say, well, have you talked to them? Do you see the difference? It's extending ourselves because of what Christ has done for us. I wonder when, the, when was the last time that you really went up to someone that, and you said, how are you really doing? No, I mean, I really want to know. Or how can I pray for you? What's one thing? Don't, don't just say, well, how can I? Just say, what's one thing that I can pray for you about? When was the last time that we actually went up to someone that we know is serving and, and, and giving or we see something and we compliment them for, you know, I really appreciate this about you. I just really appreciate the way that you, you look people in the eye and you smile and you greet them in love. What a blessing you are. What an example you are to me. What a, what a challenge it is for me to know that, you know, and I know you're struggling in your own stuff, but you care about other people. What a blessing. Last week, um, last week I got, uh, got done with church and I went over to our house and it had snowed and I hadn't been there yet. And so... Uh, I saw somebody from the church coming down the road, and they were coming to help move, remove the snow from our driveway. Later that week, somebody came over, and they were doing some painting. Somebody else was doing some sanding on some, some sheetrock in the house. I didn't ask them. I didn't call them. I didn't say, we need this. We like that. They just did it out of love. I know there are people in our church who are regularly picking up other people and bringing them and transporting them. Some bring them to Wednesday nights. Some bring them to Sunday mornings. That's love. So do I focus on how I can demonstrate love or how I am deprived of it? Do I, dem do I focus on how I can demonstrate it or just how I am deprived of experiencing. So love is commanded. Secondly, we're connected to love. In the end of verse 7, for love is from God. He says, beloved, let us love one another. That's a command. Why? Why would we do that? There's two reasons that our connection with God moves us to love. First of all, that it should be natural. God is the source of love. That's the end of verse 7. For God is, love is from God. Love is from God. I like the NIV in this translation. It says, love comes from God. God is the source from which love flows. When I was, I just graduated from high school, my parents moved to Eagle Grove, Iowa. And uh, in Eagle Grove, there is an artesian well. I don't know if you know what an artesian well is, but there, there are underground rivers and underground reservoirs. And for some reason, somebody had, uh, the, the, the artesian well is when the, the water underground river or underground reservoir is so close to the surface that the pressure inside just bubbles it up. And they had, somebody had stuck a pipe down and into this well and 
365, there's a, there's a stream of water about two inches in diameter that just comes bubbling up out of that well. It's pure, it's clean, it's healthy, it's wonderful tasting water. It's the source. It comes from the source. He says, God is the source of love, for love is from God. He's the source from which love flows. And since love comes from God, there's two inescapable conclusions. And he brings us to them, and he says in verse 7, And everyone who loves is born of God. So what that means is if we're loving people, that means we're born of God. The, the spiritual DNA in every one of God's children loves. It just flows out of us. That's the natural thing that comes from us. So those who love are God's true children. Because God is the source of love. If, if you truly love, you must be a child of God because the only place love comes from is from God. If I love, the same is true. You know, physical traits on a, on a very base physical nature that are transferred from parents to children are kind of a parallel to the character traits of God that are transferred from the father to his children. I found this picture of... Um, Michael Douglas and Kirk Douglas, Kirk Douglas on the, on the left and Michael Douglas on the right, and then a, a merging of the two on the far right. You see the resemblance? I mean, it's a mar remarkable, but you can tell they're related. Now, some parents don't pass it on as much. Maybe it's more the grandparents or something, you know. Some people look at their kids and go, I don't know where they came from, but it, it, you don't know. But it's generally true that it's passed on. If we fail to manifest the most fundamental character trait of our Heavenly Father, then we should begin to wonder whether we are born of our Heavenly Father. I have something here. Can you read that? That's right. 100% pure maple syrup. Where does 100% pure maple syrup come from? An oak tree? No, from a maple tree. Because maple trees are the source of maple syrup. Love comes from God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So if we love, we are from God. Secondly, God is not only the source of love, God is the sum of love. Notice how he ends it. Uh, well, he, he goes on, he says the second part of it is, he says, the sum of love, verse 8, the one who does not love does not come from God. Why? Because God is love. So he kind of bookends it. Love is from God, and God is love. That's the essence of his character. So you have on the one hand, he says in, in verse 7, everyone who loves is born of God. The antithesis is also true. If we fail to manifest it, then we aren't his child. The one who doesn't love does not know God. So if my lifestyle is not a loving lifestyle, then there's every reason to question whether I am truly a child of God. If there's no love in my life, then there is a question of it. Failure to love is, as an ongoing thing is the sure sign of unbelief. Now that's a powerful statement, but I'm just repeating what John says. Why is that true? I cannot give what I do not have. I cannot give what I do not have. During the Great Depression, my great-grandfather, the same one who gave me that little quote at the, that I began with this morning, 
was called up by the bank, and the bank said, we, we need the rest of the money for the mortgage on your farm. My grandfather didn't have the money. He didn't have any more money in the world. But his daughter, my great aunt, was teaching school at the time. And she says, Daddy, here, you can have this. And so my great-grandfather took the money that my aunt had, and he paid off the loan at the bank. You can only give what you have. Those who love are born of God. Those who do not love do not know God. God is the source. God is the sum. He is the sum total of that's his character. That's the essence of who he is. All that he does, all that he's ever done, his creating, his loving, his justice, his mercy is done in love. Now, God is love, but he is not only love. Okay? You don't hear me saying that, you know, because some that's kind of a big thing today now. Well, God is love, and I just preach God's love. God is absolutely love, but he is not only absolutely love. He is absolutely just. He's absolutely merciful. He's absolutely gracious. He's absolutely good. He's absolutely sovereign. He's absolutely majestic. He's absolutely self-existent. But he's love. Therefore, those who do not love don't share his divine nature. He is the sum of love. Only those connected to the source and the sum are those who love, only those who are truly his children. I brought another little thing here this morning. This is uh, black pottery, okay? It's not painted. The, 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 there's a special process that it's made. The clay is placed into an underground pit with wood, and the black smoke from the wood gets embedded into the clay. Okay? There's only one place I know in the world where you can get this. Now, there may be other places. It's the only one place I know. So if I'm marketing black pottery and it doesn't come from the place I say it came from, it's a fake. Because only the true stuff comes from the true source. This comes from southern Hungary, the town of Mohach, where we've seen it made and spun out by hand. So if I'm selling this to you, which I'm not going to, and I say this is authentic black pottery, but it comes from, you know, Timbuktu, you say, no, it's the, not the real deal. So if I'm marketing love, and I'm saying I'm loving people, but I'm not really loving people, I'm not connected to the vine, the source, and the sum, then it's not really love. If mutual love is absent... If I'm not loving people as God intended. Now, if it's absent, then my relationship with God is non-existent. Okay? But now hear me carefully. But if my, my love is a little bit inconsistent or it's inadequate, then my relationship with God is just simply deficient. Notice the subtle distinction? If there's no love at all, then there's no relationship with God. But if there's love and it's kind of sporadic, it's kind of inconsistent, it's kind of, then, then, I, then that's just a relationship with God issue. Then I just need to, you know, it's somehow is not all in line, okay? So we are commanded, we're connected, and finally we are compelled to love. Look at verse 9. In verses 9 through 12, two compelling forces motivate us to love each other. First, God expressed love towards us. And this is, it's kind of interesting how John 
moves us towards it. And that's why I think this is one of the, the grandest climaxes in a little section of Scripture. By this, the love of God was manifested in us or to us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God, and one who does not love is not know God, for, for God is love. This is how you know what love is. That God manifests Himself. How do we know how to love other people? We know how to love other people because we can see how God has loved us. And so he says, God loved us. Verses 9, emphasis is on God. And nothing, nothing motivates, nothing compels me to love others more than a deepening, a growing understanding of God's love for me. So it's, it's a response. My love for others is a response to God's love for me and for you. Nothing moves me more powerfully than knowing it personally. The most prominent demonstration is what God did through His Son, Jesus. His begotten Son means not His firstborn in the sense of chronology, but His preeminent one, the value of the gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, Paul says, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. I mean, think about that. You ever get a gift, you just couldn't describe the value of it. It's like, this is the most precious thing. I can't, I can't really describe it to you. It's so valuable. And there's no greater gift that God could send than His Son. And notice the word sent. He says, He sent His Son. And so when I say He sent His Son, what do you think about? We talk about He sent His Son. Think about the incarnation, Christmas. But He means way more than that. It's not just the incarnation, but it is His life and His crucifixion and His resurrection. It is the redemptive plan of God that provided for our salvation. He sent His Son so that worthless, rotten, undeserving sinners could be redeemed and rescued from condemnation in hell. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life so that we might have life. Notice that's what it says at the end of verse 9. So that we might have life through Him. And there's no other way to be saved than through Him. It is God's love for us, not our love for God. It's God's love for us. It's not our love for God that defines love. So love, we say, what is love? Oh, it's a feeling. How do you think Jesus was feeling? When he went to the cross. Ushy gushy warm fuzzies? I don't think so. It was excruciating pain to know that he would have the Father turn his back from him. The one that he had been in communion with from eternity past would now turn his face away from his only begotten Son. And Jesus knew it. I want you to see the words to the song that's a powerful song to me. It says, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold a man upon the cross, my sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. 
Why should I gain from his reward? Oh, it, is, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it was finished. It is finished. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And so when John says that he would become, it says in verse 10, in, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice that the wrath of God would rest upon the son of God so that God would look upon his son in despicable wrath and he would flip the whole thing and look upon those for whom he died with favor. That's what propitious means. Propitious means favor, that we would be viewed with favor by the Father. So when I think about should I reach out and give somebody a call and say, well, I know you're hurting, but I really don't want to hear your story because I got pain and sorrow and suffering of my own. I think how much greater would my sacrifice be to show the love of Christ than what Christ has shown to me? There's no comparison. There's absolutely nothing I can do to demonstrate love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ that is greater than what Christ has done for me on the cross. And so this is, this is what? He, he, he gives us this example. And he expressed his love towards us. And then God expects love from us. This is verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And you see, this is not just intended to be duty. It's not just, oh yeah, well, I got to go, I got to work on that love thing. Yeah, I, I know I got to do that. Yeah, I got I to work hard on being loving to people. So I'm going to go and I'm going to smile to people after the church. I'm even going to ask somebody how they're doing or how I can pray for them. That'd be a good thing. Yeah, it would be a good thing, but why? You see, the, the, the more I grasp the depth of Christ's love for me, the more natural it becomes to demonstrate the love of Christ to others. What I have experienced becomes natural to express. So the key is focusing on what Christ has done for me, but not staying there. That's my fear when we celebrate communion every week, is that we just stay on what Jesus did for me. But what he did for me was so that I would do for others. In his name. In his name. You see, love received, can't give what you don't have, is the fuel for love expressed. It fuels it. It forms it. It shapes it. It's like it's a response to it. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. I mean, his love for us just absolutely controls what we do. According to John Stott, all our love is but a reflection of his and a response to it. So that God's sacrifice motivates our conscious choice to regularly pray, to consistently give, to constantly care and encourage and minister to other people in the body of Christ. It causes me to sacrifice my cash, my comfort, my convenience, 
and my control. I was thinking about our, our, our team that went to Haiti. I got a picture of the, uh, the team. You can see some of them. Not everybody came from this church, but the guys. That's, that's giving up your comfort. That's giving up your cash. That's giving up your convenience. And it's absolutely giving up your control when you go on a mission trip because you never know what's going to happen. Talk to Norb about that and his testimony that he gave. You know, he shared about, you know, hey, Norb, would you share at this church? Sure. Had no clue when it was going to happen, what was going to happen. They just whisked him away, and everybody else on the team said, oh, have fun, Norb. How'd you like to be in a foreign country, not speak the language, and somebody whisked you away, and you don't know where you're going or if you're ever coming back? As my friend who's a chairman of a mission, that's spiritual bungee jumping. You know, that's an adrenaline rush or a death wish. It's only a death wish if God's not in it, okay? We're never safer than the place where God wants us. Just remember that. Never safer than where we are in the hands of Jesus. No demonstration of I have love, of love that I express will ever be greater than one that I have experienced through Jesus. Loving others proves we're Christ's disciples, and it also does something else. In verse 12, I find this very captivating. It not only proves that I'm a disciple, but it portrays God's love to the world. Notice how he starts verse 12. He says, no one has beheld God at any time. And I read, I mean, I'm reading through that, beloved, let us love one another, love us from God. Everyone who loves is born of God. The one who does not love is not know God. Uh, here, this is love that God... Uh, loved us, not that we loved him, but he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our uh, sins, and uh, then he, he and then he says, and you know, by the way, nobody's ever seen God. I mean, you just kind of read through it, you got to go, whoa, whoa, where did that come from? Nobody's ever seen God. Well, here's how they're going to see him. He says, if we love, God abides in us. You see that in the text? I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up. It's really there in the Bible. He says, God abides in us. So our demonstration of love is evidence that the Spirit of God is really in us and that we are God manifesting God to the world because God is love, right? That's His character. And when His character is seen through His children, then people see Him. And I think, wow. But if they don't see love, then they also don't see God has not manifest himself directly, but, and, and his love is perfected. So as his love is perfected in us, then people see the perfect source of love, which is God. You know, a few weeks ago we had a lot of snow on the ground, right? So what's the natural thing if you're an eight-year-old and there's a bunch of snow on the ground? What are you going to do? You're going to go sledding, right? That's what you want to do. You want to get out there and you want to go sledding. If you're a child of God, if I'm a child of God, what should come naturally? is that I want to love other people who are part of the family of God. Because I've been commanded by my Father to do it. I've been connected to my Father, enabling me to do it. And I have been compelled by my Father because I understand the love of Christ that I have received from Him. And, you know, I said that to me, at least for me, this is my understanding of it, that the deeper I grow in my appreciation of what Christ has done for me, the more natural it is for me to express that love to others. And there's no better place that I know of to understand the depth of what Christ has done than in the celebration of communion. I cannot express love I have not experienced. 
And our expression of love is in proportion to the appreciation of God's love for me. So communion, in my mind, serves at least two purposes. First of all, for those of you who are here this morning and you're like, well, I don't really know if I know about this Jesus stuff. You know, I'm not sure I really am putting my trust or my faith in Christ. It's an invitation. It's an invitation for you to understand for the very first time that Christ sacrificed his life so that the wrath of God would be poured out on him and you wouldn't experience it, but in his, he died in our place so that if we by faith would accept his gift, we would be freed from the wrath of God and be seen as propitious, favorable in the eyes of God. What a blessed invitation. And so my word to you is, as the, when the praise team comes and they start singing, then you just get busy with God and say, Lord, I realize now that I've turned my back away from you, but I want to trust you as my Lord and Savior. I want to accept your body broken and your blood shed for my sins, and right now I accept you as my God and King. And then you would come and you would take these elements as the first celebration of your remembrance of what Christ has done for you. And if you're here this morning and you, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the bread and the cup serve as an inspiration as we come to understand more fully the appreciation we have for what Christ has done for us on the cross. Let our time in meditation and reflection, why should I gain from his reward? I, I, I can't give an answer. Why me? Why am I here? Why am I? a recipient of his mercy. There's nothing in me, absolutely nothing in me that would endear God to me in and of myself. I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And now, because I'm free and forgiven, I will demonstrate that love to other people. So this communion table is open to all who are truly trusting in Jesus and his death on the cross as a payment for your sins. But I would caution you to take time to reflect and repent and do business with God. Don't come up here willy-nilly because everybody else is getting up out of their seat because you feel pressured that that's the good Christian thing to do. Do business with God, and if you can't do business with God and get things right with God and other people, then don't come up here and make a mockery of the Lord's table because Paul has said those who eat and drink unworthily, that is abomination to God. First Corinthians 11, he didn't say exactly those words. That's the sense of it, okay? Some were dead in the Corinthian church because they were making a mockery of the Lord's table. But if you're here and you know Jesus, just confess and repent and get things right with God and then come up and celebrate what Christ has done for you and commit ourselves in this body, in our families, by God's grace, to love one another as God intended us to do. Let's pray. Father, as we take this bread and drink this cup, I pray that you would give us a greater, deeper appreciation of what you've done for us. Those who don't know Jesus, that they would repent and turn and in prayer confess their sins and accept Jesus' death on the cross as a payment for their sins. And then they would come and take these elements as a, a commitment, understanding of what you've done. Those of us who know you, don't let this become routine. Don't let this become just tradition. Let it deepen our appreciation for our salvation and motivate us 
the greater expressions of love for others. We pray in Jesus' name. All I can say is I hope that is really your prayer, that you would sing for all that he has done, done for you and me. John said, Jesus actually said, this is, uh, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So let's go in the power of Christ and love each other and sing of all that he has done for us. You are dismissed. Thank you. Thank you.